Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid, or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. I'm delighted that the latest guest is Paul Howard, somebody who I used to work with in the Sunday Tribune newspaper many years ago. We worked together for six years when I was the editor of the paper and he was the chief sports writer and for a while also the sports editor. An absolutely brilliant journalist to work with and his sports journalism and other journalism is something that is part of this Magnified podcast. But we also started the Ross O'Carroll Kelly column when uh, we were working together in the Tribune and it of course has grown into something altogether special in Irish literary circles and we'll be talking about that. But there's so many other things that Paul Howard has done. Oh, we could, we will be talking about Copperface Jacks, the musical. Uh, the Anglo musical as well, which was a very difficult period in his life, as you'll hear uh, during this podcast. We'll talk about all the great sports stories that he wrote as well, which are of general interest rather than just to the sports fan as well. And many, many other things. He's, for example, part of the writing team for the brilliant band Sisters at present. So there's so much in this packed interview with Paul Hard, magnified by Matt Cooper. I really hope you enjoy it. Paul Howard, thank you very much for joining me. There's two books I'm going to be talking to you about. Your new Ross O'Carroll Kelly book, Once Upon a Time in Donnybrook, and also the book that you have done with Roddy Collins, which I'm really looking forward to seeing yeah. and hearing. What's it called? It's called The Rod Father. <laughs> that sounds like a title for a Ross O'Carroll <laughs> Kelly book. <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually funnier than a Ross O'Carroll Kelly book, I have to say. You know, I mean, there's, a, there's a lot in it about football, but there's a lot in it about about his life and and the the, the many twists and turns it, it it's taken what what's fascinating about Roddy's story is you know when it, when you see it kind of when you see it over when, over the course of 20 chapters you kind of expect a life to kind of wind down and you expect you know the, the like he it isn't a rocky story where he has this kind of world cup win or premier league win and then and then sort of the you just sort of pat out the end his life was still taking twists and turns up until, you know, the last chapter of the book, you know, and and there's more to come as well, I think. We'll get back to Roddy Collins in a minute, but I want to show you something that I dug out last night. (laughs) The Miseducation of Ross O'Carroll Kelly, The Diary of a School's Rugby Player. This is the original first book of the Ross O'Carroll Kelly. This is probably a collector's item at this stage. Well, they're they're selling for £100 sterling on, on Amazon. Are they? Uh, yeah, which is a source of, of, of huge pain to me because I pulped 4,000 of them. <laughs> Listen, I remember we had a storage room in the Sunday Tribune where we had all these damn books that we couldn't get rid of. I, I, you know, I, I, it was the first, the very first edition and me, myself and Jerry Siggins put it together and we printed it. And in a, in a fit of optimism, I, I, I ordered 5,000 of them, having no idea what 5,000 books looked like. And they came out, I remember they arrived in the Sunday Tribune, uh, there was a pallet piled high with them outside the door, and I said to the guy in the van, oh my God, is that, is that 5,000 books? And he said, no, that's 1,000, there's four more in the van. So these 5,000 books took them up the stairs, 
I don't know if you remember this, Matt. At one stage, you said to me, uh, you know, they're blocking the fire stairs and we've been told they have to move because nobody will be able to get out if there's a fire. And I said, what will I do with them? And you said, well, have you thought about maybe put them in a bookshop? uh, (laughs) So I was driving around Dublin in in, in this old Nissan Micra I had at the time. It was my first car. And these things were weighing down the, the suspension on the car. And I remember going into Eason's and I said, I've written this book and it's, it's what, what's it about? Well, it's kind of like it's Celtic Tiger thing. He's kind of a poster boy and sending up the Celtic Tiger. It's a satirical thing about schools, rugby and schools, rugby players and their families and all the rest. And, uh, and the guy said, oh, that sounds great. We'll, we'll take 10. I said, this is the biggest, the biggest bookshop in the country. Now 5,000 of these things. But a friend of mine, uh, Liam, worked in... Um, in uh, Hughes and Hughes, in, which was then in the Stevens Green Shopping Centre. And they, they were very, very good in that shop in that they actually put it on the bestsellers uh, uh, shelf when it wasn't actually a bestseller. And I went in one day and I said, how's that book of mine? I mean, he said to me, that book is what we call a cult classic. I said, what does that mean? He says, it means only your mother and father bought it and they haven't even read it. What were we thinking at the time? I'm trying to remember back the financial arrangement we must have reached for the public. Because the book clearly has the Sunday Tribune logo on it. So I think we financed it. Mm. In fact, I'm pretty sure I had to try and explain this at a couple of board meetings as editor (laughs) as to what the hell we were doing by trying to branch into book publishing. And we actually printed all of this without actually having any distribution really set up for it. Nothing. I mean, I I was going from bookshop to bookshop hand and hand and piles of them in um yeah it was foolhardy at the time but uh, the most foolhardy thing was pulping them you know because i mean, obviously the store <laughs> space was an issue at the time photography had gone digital so we had that dark room do you remember the I dark remember room it, where yeah. used to um the photographers used to develop their film and there was there was about three thousand of them in there and i remember they were they were the ones and the ones on the fire stairs that i that i pulped where did, um, where did you get them pulled? Um, it was a, it was somewhere out near Blanchardstown, um, and yeah, that was, must have been a horrible experience. Oh yeah, I mean to 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 watch it, yeah, yeah. You're, there's your books, <laughs> and they've just been destroyed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, i you know, I suppose it's uh, that that was that was the beginning of it, you know. But it, it took it took a while for. It was probably about a year later that the Ross thing really caught on. Um, and that was when we moved it out of the sports section. That was Paddy Murray's. It was the late Paddy Murray, who, of course, unfortunately died earlier this yeah. year. Um, Paddy was an enormous supporter of what you were doing with Ger Siggins' support. Yeah. I mean, Ger was essential to this yeah. as well. Yeah. And Paddy was always on to me. We have to move this into the main section, yeah. take it out of the sports section, put and it Paddy, on the back page. Paddy was just a great newspaper man who just had great instincts for he things was. like that. And he said, it's, it's not about sport anymore. It's, it's, about, it's, about, it's about Ireland. It's about Irish life. It's about modern Ireland. And... Um, and then when he when he moved it to the back page of the main paper, that's when people's you know it, it caught on a bit more. And because I was writing about real places, the first this book in particular, I rewrote it later on for the O'Brien Press. Uh, and the miseducation the, of Ross yeah, and Carol and Kelly. it came out as the the miseducation years. Um, and the key to it 
to the success, I think, was in this particular, that particular version, I, I didn't use real names of schools and real names of pubs. And then, and I realized that was a mistake. So I have Blackstones College and Castle Rock. And I started, I just started calling out Blackrock College, Gonzaga, Clongos. Uh, and that's when people, I think that's, that, that was behind the success of it because I was writing about real places and yeah, but the miseducation years doesn't have the beauty of the pun of the miseducation of Ross O'Carroll Kelly, which yeah. was the miseducation of Lauren, Lauren Hill. Hill at yeah. the time, which was the big album. Yeah. And with Penguin, who've been your publishers now for God knows how many years, you, you have these fantastic punning titles all the time. Yeah. Once Upon a Time and Donny Brook yeah. riffing off the recent Once Upon a Time in movie, yeah. Hollywood, yeah. yeah. Um, the titles are really hard, like because you have to... You know, I, I always feel that if I have a title that elicits a laugh from someone, there's a chance they'll pick up the book and they might buy yeah. it. And so that's why the titles are so important. But I think we set a high bar for ourselves early on. And so every year it has to be. So what will your favourite titles be? Um, Normal Sheeple, I think, is that, that's probably my favourite. Um, I like Once Upon a Time in Donnybrook. I think it's good. Um, but some of them, sometimes we've been completely stuck. And... Uh, like there was one call, it was eventually called uh, Keeping Up with the Kalashnikovs, it was called. <laughs> uh, but originally it was called Raiders of the Lost Dork. And I wasn't happy with it. I didn't, I, I, di- I didn't think it was a good title. And Why was that? Because it was dated maybe? Yeah, it was, it was an 80s yeah. pop cultural reference rather than, you know, some, but, it, but it fitted the book. And because Fionn... Uh, Ross's nerdy friend had been kidnapped in Africa and the guys went to, to try to rescue him and uh, but it fitted and I knew nobody was all nobody's really saying anything you know and uh, Michael McLaughlin and Penguin went yeah it's good but I knew he wasn't wild about it and actually when they presented the book to Eason's Eason said we don't like the title and so we went back to the drawing board uh and they were completely right, you know, and, and it is great that they actually, they can say that, you yeah. know. So we went back to the drawing and board. And that they're taking more than 10 copies. Yeah. <laughs> I think they took, I think they were taking uh, several thousand. So yeah, <laughs> it was, it was important to listen to them. But we, we went back to the drawing board and, and came up with a, came up with a new title, but it was very late in the day. We had the cover and everything. Like, I, I think it was, you know, a couple of weeks before it was due to be printed. But given that... It took time to take off and for you, I suppose, to get into the flow of it. Were you, what made you stick with it? What made you believe in it, given that you'd had that experience of the first book being pulped? Yeah, it was... I, I don't know. I, you see, I never took it that seriously at the beginning. It was, always, it was always a way of just amusing myself on a Friday afternoon. You know, I was, I was a bit of a clown in the office, as you remember. Oh, man. I'm getting to that in a minute, yeah. <laughs> uh, but on a Friday, I'd file my, my main feature for the sports section on a Friday at about three o'clock. And I usually had to wait around for Hugh Moen, the, the barrister, to come in and, and read my work because... Very definitely. I was writing about Michelle Smith. I was writing about the FAI. I was writing about Pat Hickey and the Olympic Council of Ireland. So my 
copy often had to be legaled. So I had this kind of three or four hours to kill, usually on a Friday afternoon. And that's when I, that's when I started doing it. And I think Jerry Shitsigans are, she just wanted to, you to have something to do so you'd shut up and wouldn't yeah. be distracting everyone else around yeah. the office. I, I think doing that's a fair Adam comment. Partridge impressions or Vincent Brown impressions <laughs> or various other things. Now, you know, because in fairness, I will say to you, when you were writing your own stuff, you mean you were exceptionally professional and you are really intense. I think you're quite intense, yeah. actually, when you get going. Yeah. And you'd be seen at your desk really getting stuck mm-hmm. into it. And I know during the period that I had you as sports editor of the Tribune as well, you would have been really, really serious about mm-hmm. getting your work done. But when you had your work done, everyone else had to put up a Paul Howard going <laughs> off the reservation. The Paul Howard show. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a pure comedy show, yeah. Which we enjoyed, but we did need to shut you up on a Friday afternoon occasionally. So you started writing this. Yeah, yeah. It was one of one of the things I did, yeah. and um, But I think, like, I was getting reaction to it. Like, even shortly after we, I pulped all those books, um it started to get a reaction. Like, so it was people, were, there was no internet. Well, there's no, certainly no kind of Twitter or social media no. or anything, but people would actually ring the office and say, uh, you have to tell, you have to tell me who's writing the column. Uh, is it Draco? That, that was a, I'd never heard of Brian O'Driscoll. Like this was maybe the year 1999, maybe. And um, Ross was in college in UCD and, uh, I was going out with a girl who was in UCD at the time, so she was giving me loads of sort of information about things that were happening. And then I went out there a few times, and I saw there was an iron stomach competition where the, these guys, eight or nine guys, were sort of sitting on these high stools, and they were eating this, just these disgusting things like a cat a cat food sandwich, uh, a Weetabix, a Weetabix with uh, ketchup on it and, you know, disgusting things. And then drinking this beer that was like a year past its sell-by date. And as you vomited, you were out of the competition. It was the last last person to vomit. So I wrote about the Iron Stomach competition in the Ross column that weekend. And there was suddenly this awareness on, on, on the campus that he's here. Whoever is writing this is, is here amongst us. And I hadn't put my, my name, it wasn't on the column for the first couple of years. And um, the, uh, the, the, that was one of the calls because Ross was doing the sports management, uh, sportsman dip, as they call it. He was doing the sportsman dip course in UCD that Brian O'Driscoll was doing at the same time. So that was the call. So is is it is Doris or, or is is Draco writing that column or Scals was um, Kieran Scally, Kieran Scally, Brian's friend. So so there was there was kind of a buzz about the place. And then when I finally went to UCD, I, I kind of stepped out. I had to if I, I knew if it was going to be a success, I'd have to promote it and stuff like that. So I kind of I, I stepped forward as the face of Ross, and I was invited to uh, do do a reading and a little bit of stand-up in one of the theatres out there. And so many people turned up that the fire officer uh, closed the location down. Like, so that's my where the streets have no name moment. Like, you know, that YouTube video where yeah. we're shutting the location down. <laughs> so uh, that was that was my moment. And that's when I went, wow, this, 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 that was when it started to get big. But how have you managed to keep it going? 
I mean, that's extraordinary that you have to come up with new storylines yeah. and keep the characters fresh and simultaneously be writing in parallel a weekly column for the Irish yeah. Times, which is different to the books. I know. A 30-year mortgage is a good incentive <laughs> to keep going. But I, I don't know. I mean, I enjoy it. Clearly. I'm, I'm, you I'm have st- to. I'm, I'm still a voracious reader of newspapers like I, I buy newspapers not I don't read them online I actually go and buy newspapers and I read them all the time so I, st- I stay in touch with what's happening and, and I try to parlay a lot of that stuff into the into the books as well so just to kind of keep them current and um, but you're not hanging around UCD anymore no 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 Ross's UCD's the UCD days, days are long gone but but I, I I suppose that I enjoy it that's it and I never like I never take it for granted. I work hard on the column. I, you know, even now I'm I'm trying to come up with a column for for next week. But I think about it. I think about it all week. Like I never sit down and go right. What like what I write today. You it's know, constantly in your head, yeah, working off what it is you're yeah, going to do. Yeah, and I'm plotting next year's book now uh, with Rachel Pierce, my editor, who's been my editor since the very very first O'Brien Press book. Well, so, can I also Rachel is my editor, yeah. and I have ten thousand words I need to drop to her this weekend for my next book. Right, okay. But she's terrific. She's brilliant. She's absolutely brilliant, and I have a great relationship with Rachel in that she's not frightened to say anything to me, and I've never, you know, d- despite the success of the books, she won't let me write a lazy word. She'll tell me if an idea is bad, so. I'm I'm typing I'm typing up ideas for the next Ross book at the moment, and we'll have a meeting probably in two or three weeks' time, and she'll go through the storylines and say, "I don't think that's going to work," or "That's too similar to something you did in book six or something like that." And then, you know, that process I'm writing the storyline ideas for each character, and then I'll do a chapter by chapter about what all the different beats that are going to happen. Then Ross will do this. Then his mother will do this. Then. And so, so I plot them with Rachel really, really intricately. Um, and I find some, some authors don't plot their books. Some authors can actually just write and, and, and it works. But for me, I have to plot because if I've plotted it, I can relax and, let, and, and do the comedy bits then. You know, I can, I can concentrate on just making it funny. I mean, it is, and it's extraordinary. But, you know, one thing that also struck me, and we'll get to your career in journalism in a moment, but you write in a sort of a solitary environment now. You left the Mm. office environment when you left the Tribune. And that always struck me that as a surprise because I always got the impression that you loved the having, well, having an audience for your performing is one thing, but you also really enjoyed having the company of other people yeah. in an office yeah and that struck me it must have been a big thing for you to do to decide that you would actually yeah. isolate yourself mm. and i know you go down you have another house that you used to work in down a yeah, week you still have still, yeah, yeah i'm still down there yeah and yeah. that you do that and how difficult was that or how necessary was it that? was really difficult it was really difficult the funny thing is um mary's be, mary's been working was working at home during covid and we locked down in the house in avoca in wicklow and mary said to me at one point Paul, who do you be talking to during the day? <laughs> so, so I said, what do you mean? She said, you're just, you're just, Mary's in the, the, an office upstairs and I was immediately under. But she could hear this conversation all day. And I speak, I, I, I speak words as I'm writing them, especially if I'm writing phonetically. So if I'm writing a, a character from, from uh, the North or somebody from Cork, I'm actually saying his lines so I can 
right? So I, I do, I talk to myself all day. Um, and maybe that's for want of company. But I really missed the office. I still do. I don't, the, the thing is, I don't think newspaper offices now are like they were when we, when we first went into journalism. I remember the first time walking up the stairs into what was then Vincent Brown's Sunday Tribune. And I walked into the newsroom and it was, you, you could, the, the testosterone, the stress. Um, I think pe- there was people, there was still some typewriter, people using typewriters. Everybody seemed to be smoking. There's just this fog of, of cigarette smoke. Everybody, there was, people were shouting at each other. And I just, I just loved it, like it, because it was what a newspaper. But that's that was a newspaper office to me, you know. That's what it looked when like. You were a child at that stage, weren't I was you? Seventeen, yeah. And I was working in a, I was working in a postcard factory in Cabinteely, John Hind uh, postcard factory, and I just remember, and I was kind of freelancing for Southside, writing stories, and Southside were in, they were they were based in the Sunday Tribune newsroom. And I just remember, like one night of that, Ken Finley, who was the editor, said, uh, "Would you stay for a couple of hours and write a couple of stories?" And I said, "Yeah, I'd love to." And I just remember thinking, "This is it. This is where I want to be." You know. And had there been anything going up, growing up in your childhood, with reading newspapers or been interested in news? Yeah, my dad. My dad bought the Daily Mirror um, every day, and it, and it was that period where Paul Foot was writing them. Um, Great a, political columnist. Yeah, too. and. You know, I used to tear them out. I still have them all. I actually found them the other day. I used to tear his column out every week. And it, it was a page. And he would, like, he championed, you know, the innocence of the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six, um, the Tottenham Three, uh, the Carl Bridgewater, uh, people who were, who were convicted wrongly of his murder. And, uh, and then did a lot of kind of, uh, you know, uh, investigative work on... Um, you know, anti-union bashing and stuff like that. And his, it was, he was just such a brilliant journalist. And uh, I, that's, that's what drew, drew me to journalism. That's, that's the reason I wanted to be well, I'll get to sports journalism in a moment, but I want to bring up, I think it was your first book that you wrote, which was about Mountjoy Prison, wasn't it? Second, yeah. I did the Steve Collins book before that. But All right, yeah. well, we'll get yeah. to Steve Collins along with Roddy Collins again yeah. a little bit later. But... You know, you actually have had an enormous interest in social justice issues, as you've just mm. explained there from the Paul Foot uh, fanboy thing yeah, for yeah, yeah. Kizzle keeping his stuff. Um, tell us a little bit about what you found in Mountjoy, and do you still keep an interest in what goes on within our prison system? Well, Mountjoy interested me, and I was um, there was there was a former prisoner who who'd spent most of his life in there. Um, who wanted to, who wanted to tell a story, um, and he, you know, looking back over the course of his life, it was just, I mean, he'd spent probably in total about fifteen of his. He was only thirty. He was only like thirty five, and he'd spent about fifteen years inside for for never anything more serious than jumping over a, a, an off license counter and snatching the tail. Like that's kind of you know, and and it was just. A, the absolute wastefulness of of his life, you know, and and he he was um, he had AIDS at the time, and he was he was dying, and uh, and he just he just wanted to tell a story. But I was interested in it. I mean, I was put together with him as a as a ghostwriter, rather than kind of wasn't a kind of lifelong fascination with prisons. But Mountjoy was um, 
interested me because it it was Victorian and they still had that slopping out system. And, you know, so during his time, there might be four men in in a cell that was really built for one man and there's four men sharing it and they were locked up for you know most most of the day and that sense of i don't know it, it, it still haunts me actually a lot of a lot of the things he told me the stories he told me you know that just that sense of claustrophobia of being i have prison nightmares actually i have i have prison nightmares from that time still that i'm i'm locked up and to be locked up i'm locked up for something i didn't do that's the thing and no one will believe me and um it's it, it was horrific and you know stu- stuff like um you know the slopping out thing so there's a pot in the corner that everybody has to you know do their do their business in and they he didn't want to do it so he would do it in a milk in a milk carton and that's what it and just 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 in inhumanity i couldn't i couldn't get my head around just how how awful it was the conditions as it happens i've got a podcast recorded with mick clifford and david mcdonald the mm. former prison officer which yeah. will be going out at some stage in the future in which he goes into an awful lot of those conditions but given the brilliance with which you did that why did you concentrate on sports journalism, given that you had such a sort of a social interest in yeah. informing your journalism? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think sport really appealed to me. You know, when I was a kid, I was, I've been sports mad since I was a child. And especially football and boxing were, were you know, it's just all about them as a kid. And that was a, when I was about 10, I decided I wanted to be a sports journalist. And when I was about 17, maybe 16, I decided I wanted to be a sports journalist for the Sunday Tribune. Like that's, I was that specific about it. Good um, choice. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I thought so. Um, but but yeah, and, and actually, I mean, I had many moments of, of, of kind of crisis like that in my career, like where I was kind of, am I wasting my time doing sports when there's so many other things I want to write about? And I remember Paul Kimmage saying to me once, he had he had similar thoughts himself, you know. Paul, I think Paul took a year out of sports journalism once and wrote this wonderful piece out in Neilstown. He went and spent um, spent about a, a month or six weeks in Neilstown, which was kind of in the news a lot because it was it was a growing community and there was a lot of kind of social had a lot of social problems. Um, and but he said to me one time when I was having that crisis, he said, "Look, get on the train." And look at uh, you look at look at people reading newspapers. What section do they turn to first? And you know, and that was it was it was nearly always the sports section. You know, people read yeah. especially tabloids. People read them from the back. That's what I do. And I do. I do it too. You know, so, I start with sports every day yeah, before I look yeah. at anything else. Yeah. So um, yeah, I don't know if I do it if I do it the same way again. If I if I ha- if I had my life over, but. I mean, it was very, writing about sport was very rewarding. I, I really enjoyed it. Like, you know, the only pity is that the big days, uh, like like Ireland, Ireland-Holland in, in 2001, all you remember after it is the stress of it. You don't actually get to enjoy it. Like because you were up did. against deadline. You yeah. had to file immediately. Yeah, on the whistle. Yeah. yeah. We were told we were told that there was this new system coming in and with the internet was going to change our lives. And that as soon as a, when a match finished, 
uh, you would ha- you'd have up to an hour to think about what you were going to write, and then you just press a button and send it out down a phone line. This was the stuff of science fiction for us. But when it came, it was like our deadlines were even tighter. <laughs> You know? I mean, I do remember the old days of phoning copy down, you know, phoning copy in, which was just, I mean, when I think back, I was in the King's Hall in Belfast and I'd, I'd covered a Dave McCauley fight for the for the Sunday Tribune. And I was, I think I was about 18 or 19 at the time. And I was on, I was using the pay phone in the King's Hall because we didn't have a phone at ringside. And uh, so they rang me back and there's, there's a queue of people waiting to use the phone behind me, you know. Many, many of the of the, uh, of the unionist persuasion. <laughs> so all I hear is, uh, who's on the phone? Uh, it's a wee boy reporter. <laughs> who, who's he writing for? I think, what, what's, what, what, what paper is it on? I said, the Sunday Tribune. So I'm, I'm reading the I'm copy. I think it was Rita Byrne was taking the copy. And um, uh, the next thing, one of them says, he says, he says Macaulay lost the third round. The third round was his best round. So I've got them all commenting on my piece, you know. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I miss those days. When you gave up sports journalism, I remember talking to you about it because I was disappointed to hear you were giving mm. up sports journalism because, and I'm not just trying to flatter you, I mean, I regarded you as the best sports writer well, thanks, that I'd Matt. worked Thank with. Thank you. I, I should have to, given that you cost me a small fortune <laughs> in some of the places that you ended up travelling to on behalf of the Tribune and the expenses bills that I used to have to sign off on. But anyway, we get, might get back to that. But you said... And I thought it was very taken by it that you felt that you weren't getting the access that you needed in a lot of sports, that everything had become very commercialised and packaged mm. by sponsors for players and managers. Yeah, I, I remember going. I remember going to England to to interview um, a player, and he, you know, like it was. He, we we literally did the interview in the car park with him leaning up against his car and. Um, he said, you know, like 10 minutes after less than 10 minutes, he said, uh, I've got to go. And, and he was gone. And I kind of, I think I got up at like five in the morning to go to the airport. And, and you know, optimistically, I'd booked a flight home for like nine o'clock that night, you know, and there was a whole day to kill in England uh, with, with, you know, nothing. I mean, I got, I think when I transcribed the interview, it was, you know, 800 words long. And I think the feature I was asked to write was two and a half thousand words. So the interview was dead. Like sports people just didn't want to sit down for in-depth interviews. When I started in sports journalism, you could ring the captain of the Ireland football team or the Ireland rugby team. Uh, I remember Andy Townsend when he was the captain of the Irish team and you just ring him up and say, the match is coming up. Can I do an interview? And he would say, yeah, what day are you coming over? Pick you up at the airport bring you to his house, do the interview like we're doing an interview in your house and then drop you to the airport. And it was brilliant. You get two or three hours and then it just stopped. You know, you just couldn't get access to anybody. So um, 
I, I always liked doing interviews. I liked sitting, de- sitting down with people and, and finding out what made them tick. And um, yeah, I, that, that, was kind of, that was gone. Um, I still enjoyed the live aspect of the, the covering live sport. I still enjoyed, but it was, it was definitely changing. You know, it was, it, I mean, it's, not, it's, it's completely different now. Um, but I just, I think if you can't actually sit down and talk to people, it's, um, it, it makes the job harder. I'm trying to think of some of the big sports features you did at, during the time when I was editor of the Tribune. Um, as I said, still getting over the expenses involved. But um, I just think three come off the top of my mind. One would have been the referee who did us in 1981, the World Cup qualifiers, yeah. uh, when Ireland should have got to the World Cup. Yeah, Raul, to- Raul Nazare was his name, yeah. We get that. The second one would be uh, Tomofte missing the penalty for yeah. Romania in the World Cup back in 1990, the one that Packy Bonner saved, and also Ben Johnson. Oh yeah, yeah. Just remind yeah. me about Ben Johnson well, and what you got it, out of him. It was the t- it was the tenth anniversary of of Seoul, uh, and and his disqualification, and he was ma- he was trying to make a comeback. And I just happened to be talking to his agent, who was a guy called Morris Krobatek, really interesting guy, uh, a little bit off the wall, but just a just very entertaining guy. And we were talking about drugs and sport. I actually rang him as a for a feature I was doing about doping, and he said, "You know, you know, I'm, I knew he represented Ben Johnson." And he said, "Oh, Ben's making a comeback." And I said, you're kidding. He said, yeah, yeah, it's, um, he's, he'd been banned for life. He was caught in 88 and then he came back and then he was banned. He, he tested positive a second time during his comeback and they banned him for life. And Morris took the, took the Athletic Federation to court uh, and, and, you know, got it overturned. I think it was on the basis that you couldn't, it, it wasn't constitutional or something to ban him for life, to do anything for life. Um, so he was making this comeback. So he said, why don't you come over and, and interview him? So I sheepishly walked into your office and said, can I go to Toronto? Um, but it was, it was fascinating. Sorry, I just want to have to really clarify, you never did anything sheepishly. So like, let's, let's not indulge that. All I was right? sheepish inside. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, it, and 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 I went and and I spent I spent the week with him. It was the week of the uh, it was the week of the France the World Cup final France against Brazil in '98, and um, I watched him train and uh, you know I I read I, I listened to him talk remorsefully about his doping days, and then he tested positive a third time after he came back. Um, so he was kind of incorrigible, really, but. It was, um, yeah, it was... But when you mention about how, you know, people turn to the sports pages first, but it also strikes me that for somebody who's interested in good writing, sports actually is a platform in newspapers where actually you can have more space than you might yeah. be given for nearly anything else. You get, you might yeah. get a double page spread, three pages yeah. out of Ben Johnson, mainly because I'm trying to justify the expenses. <laughs> but also a political interview wouldn't get the coverage necessarily that... A sports interview would get. Yeah, well, that's true too. And then, and then, I think you've got more freedom of, of expression as well in when you're writing sports features. Yeah. You know that you wouldn't in a political because a lot of people now, when I read them, they they write in a kind of similar way. They all have a sort of similar style. Uh, whereas in sport, that was never the case. You know, you could kind of indulge yourself. And you know, I, I grew up, I grew up reading like you know Hugh McIlvanny and. 
uh, Norman Mailer and, you know, George Plimpton. So I, I kind of, I, I liked writers with a bit of style, you know, with a distinctive voice. Something else that just comes back into mind from 98 as well. I remember you persuading me that we shouldn't be cheerleaders for the Tour de France starting in yeah. Ireland that year. Yeah. And everyone was into the cheerleading mode. And yeah. We gave you the platform to say, look, hang on, this is a drug-riddled yeah. sport. Yeah. God, I remember how much I cheered when they actually did a drugs bust yeah. on the way out of yeah. Ireland and Ross Lair, yeah. of, of, which showed that we had taken the right approach. And we were getting hammered yeah, for, we being, did. I mean, for being sort of anti-patriotic by yeah. pointing these things I mean, out. It was, pure, it was a purely tourist thing, you know. I think it was tour, uh, Bord Fulcher, uh drove the whole thing but we, we so just up, to explain to people the, this, the first leg or the first couple of legs yeah. of the race of the Tour de France the we first moved, three days yeah. first three moved out of France to start in Ireland and then everyone shipped back to France yeah. and it was it was like a it was like a three day postcard you know it was a three day ad of for advertisement for Ireland and 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 I, I just made the point that we, we didn't actually have a doping program in Ireland at the time we weren't testing our own athletes and we could still, and we had two million. We spent two million, uh, two million pounds at the time, uh, to bring the Tour de France to Ireland. And I, I said, <clears throat> this is not the sport that people think it is. This is, I, and I said that drugs will be brought into Ireland. They will be imported into Ireland in vans uh, to to facilitate this race. And oh, I was called a scarist, and you know, you're doing this just for headlines and all the rest. I, I had to go on radio with, to defend you as I well. Know, I remember Pat McQuaid was, yeah. you know, was was responsible for bringing the tour uh, to Ireland, and uh, and of course, I, 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 like three days as luck would have it, three days after I wrote the piece, uh, Willie Vogt was arrested on the way to Ireland with a van load of drugs, and you know, and and of course, that was the year when the race got to France that the authorities decided, you know, it's time to send the police in. And uh, and there was the sit-down protests and all that kind of thing. The Tour de Farce, I think it became known as. Great, great stories. I should go back to the two we've already briefly mentioned involving the Irish soccer team. Finding the ref who yeah. diddled us out of the 1982 World Cup, which was possibly, all the Jack Charlton fans might not appreciate this, but probably our best ever Republic yeah. of Ireland team. They were a brilliant team. And... So it was a team of Brady, Stapleton, O'Leary, and um, Michael Robinson. They they were drawn in this group with Holland, France, and Belgium. I mean, that's a that's you know they should have they should have finished fourth or last. And, like the, and Luxembourg, I think, wasn't Cyprus, it? I think Cyprus, Cyprus, it was Cyprus. You're right. Um, and they came within you know a dodgy couple of dodgy refereeing decisions of getting to the World Cup in Spain. They were really robbed. And the referee that day, his name was, uh, it, was it was a match in, in Brussels. Um, Ireland had a perfectly good goal disallowed and uh, the Belgium were awarded a free kick right in the edge of the box for nothing that they scored from. And In very controversial circumstances, because yeah. if I remember rightly, Seamus McDonough, the goalkeeper, sort of pushed the ball up onto the pole and yeah. as he went to regather it he was taken out of it effectively he was bundled over the line yeah. yeah yeah and it was lashing rain I can still see I can still see that goal you know um, but Owen Hand was convinced that the the referee had, had cheated us he actually said to him as he was coming off the pitch you've been paid off he said to the referee so I because that, that actually <laughs> happened a lot in 70s and early 80s football yeah yeah and and Belgium 
at the, you know, but there was the, the Anderlecht scandal yeah. as well, you know. So, so if, if it was going to happen anywhere, it was going to be Italy or Belgium. And, but that, so Ireland lost 1-0 uh, if, they'd, if they'd won or, drew, or drawn the match, they would have gone to the World Cup. Uh, so anyway, I found the referee and he, he, he said he'd talk to me, and which, which was brilliant. It was 20 years on. And I rang Owen Hand. I said, you'll never guess where I'm going tomorrow. And he said, where? I said, uh, I'm, going to, um, I'm going to meet Raul Nazare. He said, you're joking me. He said, tell you what, swing into the house. I've got the video here. And Owen, Owen still had the video of the match on, on VHS, <laughs> on VHS next to the television. I, thought, I just thought he's still hurting all these years later. And with good reason. And so he gave me the video and I took it with me to Portugal and I met, I met him for lunch. I read Raul Nazari for lunch. He was kind of a strange man, bizarre man, nice, but, but just a little bit off the wall. And I said, to, I produced the video tape and I said, can we, can we watch the match somewhere? So he said, oh, brilliant, I'd love to. And I think, I don't know what stories he told himself over the years, but he, he didn't, he didn't, think it was a trap or anything I think he thought he could justify his decisions so we sat down and we watched it and I asked him about the two decisions um in particular the disallowed goal uh, it was an Arsenal move Brady chipped the ball into the box and there was a sort of decoy run and Stapleton got on the end of it and scored and he's he came up with three different explanations for disallowing the goal the first one was he was offside which he clearly wasn't and then he said oh no no the ball it was a, that was it. He said it was an indirect free kick and the ball goes straight in. And I said, no, it doesn't. Frank Stapleton touches the touches ball. It. Yeah. And then, but anyway, his, his daughter came in and her husband and he, his job as it happened was selling, um, uh, uh, um, kind of technical, some kind of technical thing, but, but it was equipment for replay, action replays on television. Anyway, I did, didn't fully understand, but that was his business, was action replays. And uh, he kept, he was backing the father-in-law up, saying, yeah, no, Stapleton doesn't touch that ball. And he keeps rewinding it. And suddenly I'm looking and thinking, am I going mad? You know, the pixels are sort of, <laughs> all I'm seeing is pixels suddenly. But it was funny because his daughter kept saying, his daughter, she, did, she didn't know that she was essentially hanging her father. She kept going, no, 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 this man kicks the ball. <laughs> and uh, anyway, but it was, but I remember I was leaving the house uh, leaving his apartment, he came down the stairs and he was really rattled. Like, you know, he was, it was like a sort of ghost had come back from the past or something. He's just sort of, and I remember when I got in the car, I had a translator with me and she was dry. We were driving away and she just looked in the rearview mirror and she said, have a look back. And I looked around and he was standing in the middle of the road, giving me a red card. <laughs> he was holding up a red card. <laughs> sending me off. <laughs> It was, touching the Alan Partridge's yeah, about that. It was the strangest, I think it might be the strangest day in my whole journalism career, you know, because I knew the stuff I was getting there was gold. I knew this was absolutely gold. And I want to ask you about, for, for a certain generation who remember this, and it, it sort of now makes me sad almost that a younger generation has never had sort of like the experience of Italian 1990 yeah. and the excitement of it. And I was lucky enough to be in Genoa the day of the penalty shootout. Oh, wow. Um. And everyone goes on about, obviously, David O'Leary's penalty mm. and Packy Bonner's save. And I always remember at the time, and a few of us were talking about it, there was this thing like, 
we deserved it. We've been through so much in this country. Yeah. And I was yeah. well, hang on a second. I think the Romanians have been <laughs> yeah. through a damn sight worse. And it was only about seven months after Ceausescu had yeah, been yeah. Uh, yeah. had been murdered uh, and the dictatorship overthrown. Timofte, the man who yeah. missed the penalty, you were interested in him, which was a great reason to go and talk to him. Yeah. It's because everyone knows the image. It was <clears throat> the image of Packy Bonner saving saving the penalty <clears throat> was such a famous, iconic image. And I always wondered about the guy on the other end, the guy who missed the penalty. The guy who saved the penalty, that's one story, but the guy who missed the penalty is another story. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. So I went, <clears throat> I went to Romania, I found him, and he was living in a, 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 a former mining town uh, called Petrashan in the um, east sorry, the west of Romania. And it was a really sort of grim place. It was kind of, you know, I remember it in black and white. That's the, that's the strange thing. I, my memories of, of, of that place are, are all black and white, but it was kind of, it was being deindustrialized and the coal mines had been shut down. So there was a lot of unemployment and really kind of grubby looking uh, apartment blocks and everything. And right in the middle of this place, there's a bar called Penalty. And it's run by Daniel Tomofte. And I couldn't I couldn't believe it. Like, you know, so so madly Packy Bonner had a boat called Daniel Tomofte. <laughs> and and this guy. So I suppose it marks them both in, in funny ways, but Tomofte was a great story because he a few years later. So hold on, could he speak English or did you have an no, interpreter with you? With me, yeah. Okay. Um he, uh, which you paid for as well, Matt, by the way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but, so he was, um, he, 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 ta- he talked about, about the years afterwards and he said his life was hell. He said it just, people ringing him up, you know, like shouting down the phone at him, you know, you've cost us the World Cup and all that kind of thing. Uh, <clears throat> people accosting him in the street and all that. And then his career, he got a knee injury and his career just sort of ended, then sort of fizzled out. He was quite young, I think. Um, and he decided eventually just to embrace it. So when he opened his own pub, he called it um, he called it Penalty. I remember it was such a bizarre place. Because as I said, it was a pretty grim place. Uh, but this was, the, 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 it was really gaudy, the pub. I remember that. It was kind of, um, uh, there was a jukebox in it uh, that, that had a lot of Shaken Stevens on it. I remember it was, some people were coming in and playing Green Door and stuff like that. You drive me crazy. Um, and uh, and anyway, it was a, it was a really it was just a great interview, you know. And um, and uh, that's that that's one of my highlights. Like it's one of the pieces I'm proudest of. I think. Do you ever miss sports journalism? Uh, all the time. I mean, I, I you know when I quit, it, it was supposed to be two years. I was ta- I was taking a two year sabbatical, and that's seventeen years ago now. Um, there's some nice things. I can I can actually enjoy sport now. You know, there were so many Did matches. Did you enjoy Liverpool last night against Napoli? I haven't watched it yet, Matt, so I, I have it on video. I've taped it on VHS. Do you, don't do you know the, the result? result? No, no, don't spoil it. I know. <laughs> I know. I watched it. Uh, I didn't enjoy a minute of it, no. Um, but but I can I can actually sit down and, and enjoy it. I can go to games now um, and, you know, have a pint. You know, Do you like a, rugby now, though? Um, n- I, I, I do enjoy it. Like I don't, I don't, I don't get it. A lot of the technical stuff. I, you know, I know, I know a lot of players struggle with a lot of the technical stuff. Um, it's, you know, I find a lot of the laws difficult 
to understand or to recognise uh, in play. Because you're um, into the lingo, though. Most people say rules, but you're enough of a rugby laws. head now to say laws. Yeah, because they were they were drafted by solicitors charging billable hours. That's why they're called laws. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean, I go, I go to I go to see Ireland in the in the when they're playing in the Six Nations. You know, I'd watch Leinster. Like I wouldn't, or if I got up early and I noticed, you know. South Africa playing the All Blacks or Argentina playing the All Blacks, I'd watch that, but I would I I would be much more interested in football. I want to talk to you about the other stuff outside of sports that you've done as well because we'll get to musicals and comedy in a moment but you wrote a terrific book a few years ago about Tara Brown. Right. Oh, thank you. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. Well, no, but that was a labour of love for you, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I mean, 10 you... years into it. Yeah, 10 years. Okay, how it. could you have put 10 years into it? Um, I suppose I was enjoying it so much because it what I kind of got sucked into that world, really, you know. So for those who aren't familiar, we better explain what the yeah. book was about. Well, Tara, Tara Brown, uh, he was, a, he was a, a bit of a kind of uh, a face, as they used to say, a face, of uh, that was the phrase at the time. He was one of the faces in 60s London. And sort of he, like a celebrity? Yeah, kind of for, for not, you know, n- but not for doing anything, you know. He kind of, he hung out with the Beatles. He was very good friends with Paul McCartney and Mike McCartney, Paul's brother, um, he, you know, he was a Guinness heir. You know, he was very, very wealthy. His dad was a member of the House of Lords. Um, he, you know, he he just kind of raced through life as if he knew it was going to be short. He was married uh, at at eighteen, had two kids, uh, and a divorce on the way. Um, he had uh, th- this uh, fling with um, uh, Amanda Lear, who was a. a um, uh, muse of Salvador Dali's you know he just had this really really kind of interesting mad life and then he died in a car crash at the age of 21 and 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 is remembered forever in a Beatles song John Lennon wrote the words uh, I read the news today oh boy about a lucky man who made the grade he blew his mind out in a car he didn't notice that the lights had changed that was about that was about Tara Brown uh, and I was interested. I love that song. Um, it's the the last song on Sgt. Pepper. And I knew he, I knew he was Irish. And I, I did a piece for the Sunday Tribune uh, magazine, uh, just a feature on his life. And I went and interviewed his brother, Garrick Brown, uh, in Lugalaw. And it was one of those pieces when you, you know, it, I had a deadline for it. And I, I felt I'd only scratched the surface. I was really unhappy with the piece. I just felt I haven't, t- I haven't even gotten near the story here. Uh, and it, it kind of bothered me for a while. I just said, there is a brilliant story here to be told. Um, so I went, I went back to Gareth and I said, I, like, I'd love, to, I'd love to write a book, book on, your, on your brother. And I think it took me a while before I got in. Uh, the Guinnesses are very, they keep you at arm's length. But then once... Once they trust you, they trust you and, and you're in. And 
Gareth was amazing. Gareth opened up everything to me, all the, his mother's albums and all that kind of thing. Um, and got me introductions to everybody. He, he'd make the phone call, you know, and, um, it was, I, I loved working on that book. I think it took me 10 years because I was enjoying it so much. Which must have been very difficult then actually to bring it down, to pare it back if you were getting that much material. Yeah, it w- that, that's exactly what it was. You know, I, there was so much. And he, he died at 21, you know. His, his 21st birthday was in Lugalaw. And it was, uh, you know, the, the, like everybody who was anybody in London in swinging, swinging London was there, you know, this huge party, uh, the Love and Spoonful with a band, you know, they, they played his 21st birthday party. They were like one of the biggest bands in America at the time. Um, and, and then he died, you know, young, six, six months later, five months later. Um, but to, to, to do as much living as he did in that time was, I, he just was a fascination to me. Um, and I, I, I suppose I came to it at just the right time. Like so many people who were close to Tara Brown, who I interviewed, have died since, um, including Gareth and Nikki, um, his widow. She she died since. But I, I, I managed to talk to a lot of them before they did die. Will you do more books like that, which are not Russell Carroll Kelly books? I mean, I know that this is sort of like your day job and that yeah. you actually... You have to produce a new book every year. Mm. You do your column. I mean, does that, and you do musicals and other things, which we'll yeah. get to in a second. But are there other perhaps big, serious, non-comedy books for you to do? I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I'd love to do. I, I, sometimes I think I'd love to read a book on a subject, and then then it becomes maybe I'm the maybe I'm the fan to write that book. <clears throat> but for years, I've thought there's a great book to be done on on the Northern Ireland football team from, from 1982. I think, <clears throat> I think that's an, that's one of the great unwritten s- sports books. And it's a book I'd love to, I'd love to read. And, you know, sometimes I do think maybe you should write it because. Unfortunately, people like Billy Bingham has died recently. Yeah, so some yeah. of the key people you'd need to talk to are getting on a bit. Yeah, exactly. But, but we supported that team when we were kids. I growing up, <clears throat> I had no interest in the Irish rugby team, who were winning triple crowns at that time. I think they won one in eighty two. They won in eighty two, yeah. <clears throat> but I was fascinated with the Northern Ireland football team. And which was actually very much almost evenly split between what you might say Catholic, Catholic Protestant, Protestant Nationalist Unionist. Yeah, yeah, I mean as you know, Martin O'Neill is in the team. Uh, a man called Billy, you know <laughs> uh, Billy Hamilton, you know, they they were and it and it worked, you know, and the, the the year they qualified was 81 and it's it's the one of the darkest years of the troubles that's the year of the hunger, hunger strikes. strikes and it it's um and and there's there's this team you know but like a, a, a country with one and a half million people in it you know um a, a, a deeply dysfunctional place you know uh, that was kind of failing as a state. Half of the people living in it won't even say the words Northern Ireland. They don't ex- acknowledge that Northern Ireland even exists. And like you said, there's a, it's a team with uh, an even split between Catholics and Protestants. Um, uh, it's, I, I think it's a brilliant story, and, and but it hasn't it hasn't been written about in a in a kind of with you know with a sort of serious. Well, now that you've said it out loud, you're going to have to go and do it. I might, yeah. 
That's right. I'll start making calls when I go home. We start. Tell me a bit more about Roddy <coughs> Collins because we mentioned it at the very start. This isn't the first time you've done a ghost-written book. Famously, you did Triggs, Ryan Rankin's dog. I wrote, a, I wrote a book about Rankin's dog. And, and is it true that you, the ghostwriter in George Hook's autobiography? I did, yeah. Yeah, that's 17, 17 years ago. You didn't yeah. get a credit in that, did you? Um, I did. In the, I didn't get a credit on the cover because... Uh, Probably because, you know, putting Paul Howard on the cover, <laughs> it wouldn't have helped the sell it. Mm, I don't know about that. Maybe it would have been George's ego was such that he wanted everyone to think he'd written it himself rather than actually having it written for him. Well, George was George was an absolute joy to deal with. And I, I just, I, you know, that, that book, that book is one of the things I'm most proud of in my career because I, I got George at a time when, he, you know, or maybe George is like this all the time. He was, he was absolutely unremittingly hard on himself in the book. He wanted all of this stuff to go in, you know, the stuff about, you know, being at the, you know, he's coach, he was coaching Ameri- the American team at the Rugby World Cup and uh, his wife didn't know, you know, she didn't know where he was. He pops up on the telly and her stepfather was in the house and said something like, you know, you know, there he is, the bugger. Uh, that George is on the television. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, it, it is... George said to me, that movie, Catch Me If You Can, uh, the is it Leonardo DiCaprio film? He said he watched that and he said, that's what my life was like. He said he was just living this, just this lie, a lie of a life. Anyway, when he read the book, he said to me, I keep thinking, oh my God, what have I done? And I said, George, that's how you know it's a good book. And it's, um, and I'm, I'm, I still, I'm still really, really proud of it. You know, it's, um, and, and I'm really happy that he told it the way he did and just put all the stuff in it that, you know, <laughs> that it was me, I'd be hiding a lot of the stuff in it, you know, that a lot of the stories he told, I'd say, no, don't, definitely don't put that in, but, but he did. How does Roddy Collins compare? Um, very similar in the sense that, you know, he, he, he told me everything and, and then at no point said, take that out. There's a lot of stuff in it where Roddy says, God, I wonder how that's going to go down. Uh, but but n- never did he say to me, I don't want that story in. Um, <clears throat> and similarly, you know, the great thing about dealing with George and Roddy, the thing that kind of links them, I suppose, is they know how to tell a story. So a lot of the time you, you, you kind of think, what is my role here other than transcribing this? When Roddy tells a story... They, they they've they've been honed, you know, like they're they're polished. They have a beginning, a middle, and then they have a payoff at the end. So often, I'm I listen back when I was transcribing the tapes. I'm just laughing along a lot of the time. Um, so yeah, it was that 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 was kind of that that was what linked the two of them. Um, but Roddy's life story is. Uh, I mean, these 62 years he's lived, uh, it, it, the book, I keep saying it's like, it's like a Forrest Gump story. It goes all over the place. It has all these unexpected twists. And, you know, he finds himself after Carlisle that, you know, the day after he was sacked by Carlisle, he was back in Dublin and he didn't, he went, went to a building site and asked for a start. And he's plastering on the building site and the, the show um, on, was on Satanta at the time, the Rod Squad. It had just been shown in Ireland. And he's on the Rod Squad talking about how I'll be the manager of Ireland one day. I'm going to be the manager of Manchester United. 
And this was only a few weeks earlier. So suddenly the word goes around the building site on Fleet Street that Roddy Collins is on the site. So he said, suddenly lads are hanging off the scaffold and shouting down at them. Like, Collins, you, Collins, you wanker. I thought you were going to manage Ireland one day. I thought you were going to manage Man United. And he went home. He just, he just, but that was, that was the reality. He needed, he needed money. He, he was broke. But hold on, how did this come about, given that your first book was with Steve Collins, Roddy's brother, the former world champion boxer, with whom you fell out? Yeah. Well, I never fell out with Roddy. That's the thing. And tell us about falling out with Steve. Well, I wrote, I wrote the book with Steve in 94. And uh, it was supposed to be... Steve had read Only a Game, Eamon Dunphy's, uh, which was a kind of a year in the life of a, of a journeyman footballer. And he wanted to do a year in the life of a journeyman boxer. But so, about we'd almost finished the book when suddenly he was offered the Eubank fight. And he went from being a journeyman boxer. His career just completely took over, took off. Um, but he was being sued by um, Barry Hearn for alleged breach of contract. Um, he moved from Barry Hearn to Frank Warren. And he was, I suppose his case, his case was uh, that Barry Hearn hadn't done his job properly as a manager. He hadn't been a good manager. But the book was full of references to how great Barry Hearn was. So Steve had to put distance between himself and what he said in the book. So he said in court that he didn't, he didn't write the book. Uh, oh. So it was embarrassing for me at the time. Uh, he, called, he called me the Milky Bar Kid in court. And I remember, I remember <laughs> so going to why did he call you the Milky Bar he, Kid? He used to call me the Milky Bar Kid because I looked... I looked like the Milky Bar Kid. I was so young. Actually, no, actually, I look like I see why, actually. <laughs> I was yeah. so young and I had kind of roundy glasses, sort of John Lennon glasses that didn't make me look like John Lennon. I looked like the Milky Bar Kid. So that was their nickname for me in the Collins family, the Milky Bar Kids coming over to do an interview. Um, but anyway, I remember opening the Irish Indo the day after this came out in court and it said something about the Milky Bar Kid and the headline, you know, and Dave Hannigan was, who was a colleague of mine at the time, you remember Dave, and it, I walked in, Dave would put a Milky Bar on my desk for me, which was lovely because it just, it, 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 once it was mentioned, it was out there, but it was hugely embarrassing at the time. And I mean, it wasn't that Steve and I had a big row over it. This was just, he was doing what he had to do, which was, which was, putting distance between himself and all the thing, great things he had about, said about Barry Hearn um, in, in, in the book. I, 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 didn't, I didn't understand it at the time, but I kind of get it now, you know. I mean, yeah. he won his case, actually. You know, Barry Hearn lost. And, um, but I was, you know, I was bitter about it for a long time afterwards. You know, I, I was, I'd felt really slighted by it. Um, probably because I was still very young. I was a young journalist at the time. I was trying to make my reputation and pick up the Indo read the Milky Bar Kid. But Roddy and I never fell out, ever. Um, and I remember being in places. I remember Steve fought in, in Verbania in, in Italy, the north of Italy. And um, Roddy, Roddy had arranged a football match with the local press and I played with him in Italy. So I was played with Roddy Collins in Italy. And, uh, uh, but I remember years later, I went, I was actually back in Verbania for a wedding and I remember ringing Roddy and we had great 
you know, reminiscing about old yeah, times yeah. and everything. So I've always been able to to pick up the phone, and I I've always considered Roddy a friend of mine. Listen, we're, one or two more things to finish out on. Copperface Jacks the musical. Yeah. You're not a Copperface Jacks attendee, are you? I was a regular back in the day. See, I, I was, back in the day of Reynards and Lilies, I was, I was always too ugly to get into those nightclubs, you know? I wasn't, yeah. <laughs> they had these kind of exclusive door policies. They didn't let the Milky Bar kid they in. They let the Milky Bar kid in. They'd see me coming and they'd just go, he's not, he's not going to make anyone's night, send, send him away. But you could always, you could always get into Copperface Jacks, you know. I was in Coppers the night of the famous uh, Phil Babb, Mark, Mark Kennedy. Kennedy and the incident yeah, climbing yeah. in the cars yeah, outside. Yeah. I was in there that night and... Um, it was, uh, but but I, I always loved it. I always kind of, I never had a bad night in there, you know. It was always a great place to go. I liked it. There was never trouble in there. Probably because, you know, there's probably 300 cops in there on the average night. But you never, there was no, there was no kind of air of, drunken malevolence that you got in some places in Dublin like it was it was a, it was a fun place and so when I was asked to write to write the the musical I just I, I, I who asked who, who got the idea that you'd do musicals um I did Anglo the musical yeah okay obviously in 2012 yeah. which for legal um, reasons had a short enough run yeah no actually we got we got it on uh, and it had the. It came back. It came back for a second run. It was okay. would it open? That was the question right, okay. because we had been told uh, by the DPP not to do it. Um, we were Sean Fitzpatrick's lawyers were saying we were in contempt of court by putting it on. Uh, so it was just incredibly stressful. I think the the you know the issue was that they. I think the fine we were told was would be about fifty grand if we were found to be in contempt of court. Um, but they'd spend about three times that booking out the Borgosh Energy Theatre and um, you know contracting actors and all that kind of thing. So what happened was we we I wrote this I wrote the musical. We did the songs. We had we had the thing cast. And just as we went into rehearsals, uh, there were charges in the case. And once there are charges, you're you're precluded from you know meant referring to the case uh, publicly. Um, so you could you could go into a shop as I did and buy uh, Simon Carswell's wonderful book about about the Anglo case and go home and read it. But if you read it, this was our advice: if you read it to a gathering of more than five people, you were out loud. You were in contempt of court. Um, so we were clearly in contempt of court by by putting on this musical. But we we decided to go ahead anyway and. But there was so much, re- we had to do so much rewriting. I was still, the night before we opened, the DPP all along had been saying, don't show us the script because they didn't want any responsibility for it. But they said, do not put this musical on, but don't don't dare, <laughs> don't send it to us. And then they decided at the last minute that they wanted to read it. Um, so the night before we opened, I was in, I was in Cashel, and I was doing a gig in Cashel and I got a phone call from the uh, Paula Maluli, who was the, the lawyer for, for, for us and for the production. And she said, the, you need this rewrites. You're going to have to do more rewrites. And they wanted changes to 16 scenes. Good Lord. Uh, and I got home. I got home from Cashel at about midnight and I stayed up all night. I remember making a big pot of coffee. 
and I mean, we are changing lyrics to songs. Right? And, and you have to still keep it funny as well. It has to still rhyme. That's right. <laughs> you know, and it was things like, you know, you know, take the word, take the word uh, Greystones out of that. You can't have the word Greystones in it because people will think of Sean, Sean Fitzpatrick, Fitzpatrick where he lived. So there was so much. Sometimes it was a word, but then there was, there was entire scenes that were just butchered, had to be butchered, like take out like 15 lines of dialogue. And, and, and then the actors would also have to relearn this. So we went, I went in, I, I stayed up all night, went in at nine o'clock, uh, and then we're trying to persuade the actors to say different lines that night. And there was some issue. I think we, there was some issue that we, they had to be middle management bankers. That's what the DPP said. They, said we, they can't be senior bankers because they'll know who you're talking about. Can you, so anyway, the, 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 the advice from Paula was make the middle man, management bankers. But there was some line that one of the actors was supposed to speak and they didn't speak it. And we ran up to the, to the dressing rooms at the interval and we're, we're trying to persuade this actor, can you cram it in somewhere? It was horrendous. And of course, while I'm sitting there, this was at the first preview, uh, there's three, three solicitors sitting in front of me writing the jokes down on yellow legal pads. And we didn't know who they were solicitors for, but they were, they were writing down lines. Did you find out who they were for? No, we never found out, but we, we expected to be injuncted the next day. That was the first preview. Um, and we thought, we, were, we thought they were going to go to the High Court the next morning to injunct us and close us. We thought it was going to be one performance. But I don't know why. I don't know why the, if they just decided it wasn't worth the trouble or the bad publicity or something, they, they let us go ahead with it. The stress of that must have been incredible. Oh, it was unbelievable. I mean, I, I, I remember, I mean, I lost about a stone in, about, in the space of about a month and just through stress and not eating and... Um, you know, and, but I remember I was going on your show. It was the, the, the day we opened. I was on your show at whatever it was, five o'clock or, and I had been in, the, I'd, Darren Smith, who was one of the producers, he had told the actors about all the changes and he burst into tears. It was so emotional. We were all, we were all close to having a breakdown, all of us. He burst into tears. And um, Donal, one of the other producers, had to take over and talk to the actors instead. And um, I, I, my moment was just before I went on your show, I was sitting there and I was like, you know, hadn't eaten for, for 24 hours. And I just looked up and there was a girl sitting opposite me. And I, I hadn't actually noticed what she was doing. But when, that when I did, that's when it, it hit me. She had a, a marker, black marker and a ruler. And she was redacting the names of two of the songs that we had to drop uh, from from a thousand theatre programmes. She had all the programmes piled up. And there was a song called It's Just Like Robin the Bank, right? And it was the, it was the big song. It was like the big number that ended oh. the first act, right? And uh, anyway, but we, were, we had cannons and we were going to shoot. Uh, fake money into the audience and it was a big big number but the song had to go and we ended on something really some morose song I think it was called There's Nothing um, was it There's Nothing Wrong With Bacon and Cabbage or something which which was an okay song but it wasn't the big ending we wanted so um, but she was redacting them all and I just I just started shaking like I was absolutely shaking and I just realised what it was just everything that caught up with me everything of everything of the previous month um, and I just went out for a walk and um, 
I think it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. And Mary, Mary said to me, I rang Mary, my wife, and she said, go and have a drink. I said, I'm not sure that's the answer. She said, Paul, go and have a drink. You're gonna, <laughs> you just, and cause it, cause it had got to me, you know, Whoa. but when I look at, when I look at pictures of myself at that time, I was really sick at the time, you know, and it was just the worry and the stress of it. Was it all worth it in the end? Um, no, no, I mean, definitely not. I mean, the show was, it was, a fa- was, you know, commercially, uh, a failure because people weren't ready to laugh about about yeah. Anglo. People were still living through it at the time. It was 2012. You know, 2011 was a particularly hard year, probably the hardest of the of the the recession, and they weren't ready to buy theatre tickets to go and laugh at, at 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 what happened with Anglo. So you know, commercially it was a flop. Um, critically. A disaster, you know, because partly because of what we had to take out. out. I mean, we had to be butchered it the night before. Um, So I don't, I don't have any fond memories of that time, except that Darren and I, Darren Smith and I, were were kind of in a room waiting to talk to lawyers about something. And Darren said this throwaway comedy. Said, "Geez, we should have just done Copperface Jacks the musical." And like often, often with Darren, <laughs> it's a tr- you know it's a joke, but then you sort of see he's kind of looking at you at the side of his, you know, looking at your side, or he's thinking, "What's his reaction to that?" And then we did it, you know, a few years later. But and we, that we gave has ourselves been, a break. And that's been a terrific commercial success as well as critical yeah. success. I mean, I mean, it keeps it was, coming back. Yeah, it's th- this is the third run. The first summer, it, it was one of those word of mouth things. Yeah, we'd, we'd an, an all right opening week, and then people start talking about how. It was funny, and and then you couldn't get a ticket for the last three weeks of the first run. It was completely sold out, and we had people like the Dublin football team wanted to come in, but we had to accommodate. They could, we didn't have seats for them, so we had to accommodate them on different nights. You know, we put them in a four of them in a box one night, and then two tickets that got cancelled. You know, we'll give them like Stephen Cluxton. Stephen Cluxton went to see it, I think, three times. And became, you know, and, and you know, Stephen Cluxon's a very reclusive kind of guy, you know, became friends with a couple of members of the cast, like, you know, and they were back in his house, you know, having a party with him one night, you know, after he went to see the show. So, but it was great fun. But um, we, we were nervous about that as well, but in a different way, in a good way, because uh, Kyle Jackson, we had to get Kyle Jackson's permission. Uh, to use the name Copperface Jacks because it's his trademark. So we went to him and he said, I, I don't know. He said, he's a lovely guy, Carl, you know, and he said, I, I want to say yes to you, but I don't know if it's the best idea in the world or the worst idea. I don't know if this is going to make me or ruin me. So the lad said to him, well, why don't you come in and just listen to a reading of it? And he said, OK, I'll do that. He said, do you mind if I bring a few lads with me? And they said, no, no. So anyway, he brought five lads with him. They're all guards, right? Well, he was a guard himself. Before <laughs> he was a he former was, uh, guard, yeah. yeah. But one of them was Pillar Caffrey, the former Dublin manager. And they all come in and they look like guards. You know, you can tell. So there was this sense in the reading room when we're doing the read-through that the guards are in the room. <laughs> Everybody's being watched. <laughs> I never saw more nervous actors in my life. I'm nervous around guards anyway. I don't know why, but I, they, they make me jumpy. Um, but I looked up at one point. I was kind of terrified to see the reaction because uh, loads of gags about the guards in it. And uh, I looked up at one point and all I could see were red faces and shoulders going up and down like that. So they were laughing. And that, I knew that was a good thing. And Cahill, after the first, after the first act, Cahill just came and just said, lads, I love it. Go for it. 
and that was it. He gave us permission to use the use the name. Jeez, you we've covered an enormous amount. You've had a fantastically varied career. I mean, that must be a great sense of pride in that to have done so many different things. Yeah. It's not. Do you know what's nice? Like, I, I had a career plan, and it was it was to be a sports writer with the Sunday Tribune. And, and that happened. And I, and I was the chief sports writer of the Sunday Tribune for, you know, probably, I think, close to 10 years. And then I took the sabbatical. And now I, I you know, I, I, I still consider myself a former sports journalist, first and foremost. Everything that's happened in my life since then has been an accident. Like, there's, I, I'm not following a plan, you know. So um, at the moment, I'm doing some television writing. So um, I wrote for Bad Sisters, um, uh, we, only had, we only had Dervla Walsh here a yeah. couple of weeks ago, sitting yeah. where you're sitting, and yeah. she was terrific she's in the interview. She's amazing. Yeah, she's, she, she's such a live wire of a person. Like, I love her company. Um, but yeah, so, I, so but again, that was, a, that was an accident, you know. It, I kind of stumbled into it. So I kind of consider everything I've done since then just... As, as I just want to say, Bad Sisters is terrific. Yeah, it, it, it is brilliant. And what a cast. I mean, you know... Like Sharon, Sharon Horgan is just fantastic in it. Eve Hewson, Sarah Green, Eva Bertwistle, Brian Gleeson. They're just, just a brilliant cast. But it's written for everybody. It's not like there's a star with a supporting cast. They're all stars in this. And it looks absolutely terrific. Ireland has never looked better on television. No, I just say it's sumptuous looking. Yeah, it really is. And the music is just so well chosen. And um, the reaction has been has been great to it you know but but I, but but sorry if people have enjoyed this podcast go back and listen to Dervla Walsh who is a fantastic character as well and she's mm. been involved in things like Fargo and Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale and various other things as well yeah. just she's trying amazing. to persuade people to go back yeah, and listen to our I mean, podcast she, she's she's always worth listening to you know yeah. um she's brilliant but yeah I, I think everything everything since 2005 has just been I just go from project to project and if something interests me but I never, I, mean, I never thought I'd in in say 2002 when I was writing for the Sunday Tribune. I never thought my life was going in middle age. I was going to be writing musicals for the Olympia, and uh, you know writing for television and writing a book in the voice of Roy Keane's dog. Like I, I thought I was going to be a sports writer until the day I retired. Uh, you know, or, or was carried out of the Sunday Tribune <laughs> or thrown out, Matt, if you were the editor. <laughs> no, 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 I would never have thrown you out. I got out before you did. Anyway, look, the book Once Upon a Time in Donnybrook is the new Ross O'Carroll Kelly. Terrific. What, what number is it now? This is the 22nd novel. 22nd. Wow. And The Rod Squad, is that what it's called? The Rod Father. The Rod, yeah, the Rod Father, Squad was, sorry. The Rod Squad was the TV show. Yeah, but yeah. The Rod Father, which, yeah. as I said, is a bit like a Ross O'Carroll Kelly book <laughs> title as well. I'm looking forward, and I know you're coming into the Last Word studio yourself and Roddy to talk to us about that in the next couple of weeks. I'm really looking forward to doing that Thanks, as well. Man. Paul Hart, thank you so much for giving Absolute your pleasure. time to Thanks. the Magnified Podcast. Talking. And so that was Paul Howard, our latest guest in Magnified with Matt Cooper. If you liked it, please share it via your various social media platforms. Let people know about it, that they can get it on the Go Loud app or on Apple or on Spotify. And there's lots of other fantastic interviews there for you to enjoy as well. They're all pretty much timeless, we hope, not tied specifically to any current events, but can be enjoyed at any particular time. Our thanks as well to MG, sponsors of this series of Magnified with Matt Cooper.